Hello, we're the Cryptid Code. We're your hosts, Harmon. And Jessica. And we like to talk about cryptids, aliens, and generally anything spooky. And we pre-gamed this episode, so you can expect lots of cussing as per usual. Hey, you can't give them a glimpse behind the curtain. That's that's a producer secret. It's a fourth wall break. <laughs> Turns out the Cryptid Code is a cocktail recipe book. But welcome back to our now three-part deep dive into the myth of the Mothman and all the freaky things that came with him. Last time we tracked the origins and enigmatic agendas of one Andrew Cold and the men in black that followed in the Mothman's wake. We dipped our toe into the pool of UFO lore with a few scattered accounts, but this is where we will dive fully into the veritable ormada of unidentified objects that terrorized Point Pleasant and the wider West Virginian region. So no delay, let us begin part three of the Mothman Saga, titled The Things Above. How are you liking these names so far? I think they're good. They're great. Thank you. Perfection. Our story begins in the town of Ravenswood, West Virginia. Spring had just arrived. And as the winter cold faded, the weather was calm and cool. Warm enough to venture out into the woods on a story moonlit night, but cold enough to snuggle. Quite a romantic scene for the young and restless. So we find ourselves at a setting that seems crop up in tales of supernatural. Lover's Lane. It was 10.30 p.m. and two teens were getting down to business in the back of a car along a deserted stretch of rural road. Suddenly, they're blinded by blue light, pouring in through the windshield. <laughs> Quote, At first, I thought it was the police, and we both felt a funny tingling sensation that scared us half out of our wits. I jumped up and stared into the line. It wasn't a flashlight or a spotlight. It was more like a big ball of bluish fire hovering a couple of feet off the ground directly alongside the car. There was a funny sound, too like a low hum, end quote. We're not gonna, we're, we're just not gonna comment on the tingling sensation. Oh, we're not? No. Damn. Yeah. The girl screamed, which seemed to cause the light to slightly retreat, <laughs> while emitting an even louder hum. What? What, Jess? Aren't you taking this seriously? These people had an encounter. They saw an alien, Jessica. Treat it with respect. <laughs> <laughs> the anonymous boy would continue, quote, The next thing we knew, it was gone. Just like that. We jumped into our clothes and got the hell out of there. Another funny thing. When we got to town, it was after 12.30. We couldn't figure it out. It seemed like we only looked at the light for a couple of seconds, but somehow it must have taken two hours, end quote. Whatever they encountered, it left the kids with a sunburn that would cover their entire bodies. Including the peen. I assume. The peen and the bean. Some uncomfortable places. The boy in particular had his eyes swollen shut for two weeks. Oh. Let's hope it's the only thing swollen. <laughs> oh, God. Yet both lovers decided to keep their stories to themselves. How do you go home to your, like, parents with your eyes welded shut and just not talk about it? Right? Also, I mean, I guess I get it, though, because... Wait, what year was this? 
1967. Yeah, you're not gonna tell your parents you're fucking in the woods, right? Oh, oh, Charlie horse in my neck. Ah. How does this always happen to you? Ow, 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 because facial paralysis. Ah, ow, we're gonna have to head all this out. Oh god, it's in my jaw. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's like a Charlie horse in my face. <laughs> what, sorry? Um, sunburn all over their bodies? Oh, yeah, and just. Eyes swollen shut. How do they not? What 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 do they tell their parents? I don't know because I guess in '67 you're not going to tell your parents you were out fucking in the woods, but at the same time, like you left in the middle of the night and then you came back with sunburn so bad. Well, okay, we have to decide what they're more suspicious about—the fucking or the UFO. Like, which one's going to be harder to explain? The UFO. Well, it's the '60s, so it's a genuine question. Well, yeah. You're pre-marital? No son of mine. You anyway. know, in the 60s, that's when Jeffrey Dahmer's mom started seeing UFOs everywhere. What? So that's like... Oh, it, Jesus Christ. <laughs> a big part of the show like plays into his childhood, and um, turns out his mom was like fucking out there. But she came home, like talked about UFOs, and she was telling her husband, like, I've seen one, I saw it, I saw it, I swear. And he was like, there's no such thing as UFOs, Joyce. And she was like, I saw the UFO. And then she held a knife to him, and he's like, you know what would calm you down, Joyce? A fucking lobotomy. <laughs> and then, um, like, when she left, Dahmer looked at her and she go, he goes, you're gonna go chase UFOs on the other side of the country and she goes, they are real! And like sped off. This is a Dahmer podcast now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope you're all cool with that. I'm joking. Good fun. Do you think Jeffrey Dahmer is mom? Yes. Mystery solved. We're gonna see how much of this makes into the episode. <laughs> Not a lot. Yet, both lovers decide to keep their stories themselves. Partially out of fear no one would believe them. Partially because they didn't want to answer the subsequent question of, well, what were you doing out there with my daughter? <laughs> However, they did eventually open up to John Keel. Under the condition, they remained anonymous. The lovers probably did not know at the time, but Keel, a seasoned investigator into the paranormal, would recognize what the couple experienced as a phenomenon known as missing time are you familiar with the concept have you heard of the missing time phenomenon sort of oh okay missing time is commonly reported by those who encounter ufos especially among those who claim to have been abducted typically abductees will have massive gaps in their memories or simply appear somewhere of no knowledge how they got there and the amount of time that had passed does this hint to an extraterrestrial connection so it's just like childhood trauma. It's like how I don't remember the ages like five to thirteen. I know you're joking, but yeah, it's kind. Of, it is very much like that. Like, no, I genuinely do not remember my life from the ages five to like oh, thirteen and no. a half. This is a therapy podcast now. No. Okay, we've gone through Dahmer and therapy already, and we're only eight minutes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's actually very common among UFO. Uh, abductees to have symptoms of straight up PTSD like uh, Betty and Barney Hill one of the most famous abduction cases they were they had PTSD they were found in the same state of trauma and shock that like survivors of disasters have like people who, des- who survive like 
attacks or something. Vietnam veterans. Kind of, yeah, especially because... Uh, it's so wild that, like, a UFO... Like, people who don't believe in shit like that would never understand either. Like, so, you know, it's like you can't sit there and tell, like, someone who went through a war, like, someone who was in a natural disaster or something like that, that their mental illness from that isn't real. But, like, you can look at someone who saw a UFO and be like, oh, you're fucking insane. Yeah. And I feel like that's why the UFO community is so tight-knit as it is. And surprisingly supportive. But that's getting sidetracked. I do want to cover the Betty and Barney Hill abduction at one point, but this is about Muffman. The truth of the matter is that West Virginia was facing an enemy it was not prepared for. It was not the economic turmoil so often plaguing the state, or the communists they read about in papers, but a threat that had not so sparked the imaginations of Appalachia since the fateful encounter outside of Flatwoods in 1952. Yes, we will get to Flatwoods at some point, but for now, whatever unknown entities pilot the UFOs and the other glowing lights in the sky had their sights firmly set on Point Pleasant. Keel and Hire were running all over Point Pleasant, tracking accounts and sightings of UFOs. They also regularly spot UFOs on the hilltops surrounding the town. In one particular case, Keel and Hire were skywatching from a hillside along Dan Darrison a movie producer from New York working on a documentary on UFOs. He was also a trained pilot, so when they saw a red glow darting across the sky, he could confirm it did not look like any plane he knew. This was confirmed as when the plane crossed the only cloud in the sky. It did not emerge from the other side. Instead, a normal plane that did not resemble the object they saw came passing through. Which is a bit freaky, isn't it? Like... You see a UFO come in one side and a plane comes out the other. Yeah. It's like a very small cloud. It's a little much. Before the end of the month, Darson would return to New York with the intention of gathering a film crew to document everything occurring in Point Pleasant. Ironically enough, this meant he would miss one of the busiest months of the UFO wave. March 31st, 1967, a glowing object crashed into the shack that held the sheriff's radio transmitter. It took firemen a while to get up the hill due to both the volume of vehicles trying to get up the very narrow road. Eventually, they did manage to contain the fire caused by the impact, but found that the transmitter was ruined. Not by flames, however. Strangely enough, the radio showed no signs of fire damage but was instead burned out as if struck by lightning. What? This crippled the police's communication system, effectively leaving Point Pleasant authorities unable to coordinate. Keel theorizes that this may have been an intentional move by the visitors, as the destruction of the radio was simply an opening move to what would become one of the craziest months in Point Pleasant's odyssey through oddity. This town is cursed. Oh, we'll be getting to that. That very night, Keel was visiting Gallipolis with one officer, Harold Harmon. <laughs> yeah, I know. When they saw glowing lights that appeared to zigzag to the sky. Harmon attempted to radio it in, but found that it only produced static. He also met two teenagers who happened to be out that night UFO hunting. Keel expressed his desire to go deeper into the woods, but Harmon was reluctant. 
Let me tell you, I, I know I say this like every time, West Virginia really embraces cryptids, UFOs, everything. People are nuts here. They just go UFO hunting. They go cryptid hunting. Like this is one of the very few states where I feel like we're not afraid of this shit. We're all just like, I want to see it too. I need to know. Let's go Mountaineer. <laughs> I'm going to get Mothman and Pepperoni roll. My father was a mothman, and my mother was a pepperoni roll. <laughs> my uncle is the Flatwoods monster. I grew up in Cyan Hill. Hey. Leave me alone. <laughs> so, accompanied by the two teens, Keel began his hike upwards. Once atop a hill overlooking a forest, Keel saw purple lights above the property of a local farmer named Rolf Lee. Lee would later say that he had seen plenty of similar UFOs on his farm but tried his best to ignore them. Keel flashed his light towards one of the glowing orbs, and none of that seemed to dart away as if to avoid the beam. Suddenly, the entire forest was basked in a bright purple light. Keel and the teens were so frightened by the immense glow, they did not leave the hilltop until morning when the lights finally faded. Keel returned the next day on April 1st, this time accompanied by Mary Hyder. They searched the area, Keel saw the purple glows, they found themselves on Five Mile Creek Road. A farmhouse, most likely Rolf Lee's, did sit on the hill, but there's no other structures. While Keel looked around, Hire noticed a red light atop a hill south. She called Keel's attention to the blinking lights as it came towards them, swaying almost like a fishing bobber. At first, it appeared as a square or a rectangle, but as it came closer, more details became distinguishable. They described it as about 50 feet above the ground and with a series of windows. Now, this is where reports diverge, as Kiel says he could see a person through the window. Why Hire said it was simply a, a partition. Kiel flashing his light on it caused it to fly up into the air before it disappeared. They'll see UFOs in this area again the next day on April 2nd. Kiel and Hire watched as a number of multicolored glowing orbs. Some were purple, others were red, and others changed all kinds of colors. Keel knew that he seemed to avoid his flashlight, but he decided upon changing tactics. He took his flashlight and proceeded to flash out in Morse code, descend. And to their amazement, it did. It didn't land, but actually lowered his altitude, described as uh, with a kind of falling <clears throat> leaf motion, so back and forth. It's just that feather from Forrest Gump. I don't know. In the beginning of Forrest Gump, there's like this really soft, like sweet piano music, and there's a feather that just kind of floats around the city. Oh, so we have Jeffrey Dahmer. Therapy. Therapy and Gump. That'd be the ultimate. I want that as the next Virtues movie. <laughs> Dahmer versus Forrest Gump. Oh. Oh. Let's fucking go! Around 12.30 a.m., Hire decided to leave while Keel stayed behind. At 1.35 a.m., Keel was watching the lights from his car, where a circular object landed only a few hundred feet away. It seemed to pass parallels to the car. He described it as such, quote, The greenish upper surface was topped by a bright red light. There were reddish portholes or circular lights around the rim. The colors were so bright, they're almost unearthly, end quote. 
Like LED headlights. <laughs> but also at a rave. It's just a time traveler. Keel had several physical effects from the encounter. Primarily, he had intense onset of instinctual fear, very similar to the zone of fear back in episode one. Further, he had heard an unexplained sizzling sound and there developed conjunctivitis or a red burning eyes. The following is from his own no notebook. Quote, 2 a.m. Drove to turnaround point. Turned and returned to original parking position. <laughs> Unable to see anything in the ravine. No lights or signs of activity. Still scared. Not anxious to get out of the car. End quote. Part of what fueled his anxiety was that he could not see the moon, even though it was supposed to come out at 1.59. He would continue not to see it until he left the area around 3.30 a.m. When he returned with hire Deputy Halstead and Sheriff Johnson that afternoon, they discovered scorch marks where they had seen the object. Judging from the broken tree branches, the object was also much larger, standing around 15 to 20 feet. Jesus. While they're there, Johnson's radio started loudly announcing police calls despite being turned off. So we can't have a weird electrical interference that people usually get with UFOs. What, what are your thoughts so far? We, we've been covering a lot. Oh god. I don't know. I'm just like really interested in what all this shit means. Like there's so many colored lights and there's bright things and other colored lights. It feels like my brain. <laughs> that's just what I Oh, that's the end of the sentence? <laughs> okay, cool. That's it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's So just you're like, a little inside-out character who's having a rave all the time? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's just anger, really. For those at home, I want you to know she had the most sincere look on her face when she said that. <laughs> but, uh, contain? Sorry? Um, god damn it. I don't remember. I'm insane. I think that's all we're taking away from this right now. You're on podcast. Uh, oh, Jesus. Podcast. You're on a podcast with me. You're you're insane. They know. They know. Mary had her own encounter that night as well, but she would not tell Keo about it until the sixth or seventh. She said, "Quote, you know, there's something I've been mean to tell you." I don't know why, but it's always seems to slip, slip my mind. That night that I left you early, the night you saw that colored disc, when I got to Route 2 and started for Point Pleasant, I saw a big globe of white right on the river. I couldn't figure out what it was, but I didn't stop. The funny thing is, I forgot it completely. I didn't remember it until a day or so afterward. Then I forgot it again. I can't understand it. I've always had a very good memory, end quote. Keel would attribute this to uh, oh god, lacunial amnesia, which is apparently common in UFO witnesses. It's like selective amnesia where even though you know it's important, you just forget about it. Once again, my childhood. <laughs> Meanwhile, the residents of Camp Conley Road were chest deep in strangeness as their humble patch of road became a breeding ground for unusual objects in the sky, with almost as many sightings as the TNT area. Among the primary witnesses was the Lilly family. The patriarch of the family, retired riverboat captain James Lilly, 
regularly saw bright colored lights just outside their house. He was quoted saying, quote, it didn't take us long to learn that when our TV started acting. It was a certain <laughs> sign that one of those lights was passing over. I didn't think much of all the flying saucer talk until I started seeing them myself. You got to believe your own eyes. But, this sounds like my grandparents. Oh, the TV's acting up again. <laughs> must be them gas dilly dang lanuogians. His wife would say, Oh, we've seen all kinds of things. Blue lights, green ones, red ones, things that change color. Some of them have been so low, we thought we could see diamond-shaped windows in them. And none of them make any noise at all. Hmm. Cars around the house would stall out. They also suffer from the same poltergeist activity that terrorized the sky batteries, including slamming doors, metal bangs, and the sound of crying babies that came from seemingly nowhere. Speaking of connections to the Scarberries, it is worth knowing that one of the scariest encounters was had by their 16-year-old daughter, Linda. She awoke one night to find a figure standing over her bed. She says, quote, It was a man. A big man. Very broad. I couldn't see his face very well, but I could see that he was grinning at me. End quote. No! She also described the man as wearing a checkered shirt. But yeah, he's back. So it's the smiling man who has uh, learned what vans are. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what year was this? Uh, 1967. Oh, okay. Vans have been out for a year at that point. So checkerboard <laughs> is a... Uh... And, and before he left, he said, uh, I'm a skater boy. See you later, boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. It shouldn't be that funny. <laughs> God, that was a stupid song. Can we make it any more obvious? <sighs> Audible sigh. The man walked around her bed and loomed over her, causing her to scream. Then the man bolted out of bed and fled to her mother's room. Yet when they returned, the man was gone. After that, she refused to sleep alone. Now you might want to write this off as a case of sleep paralysis. Normally, I would agree, but there are some things that hint to this being more. First of all, she was able to run. If it was sleep paralysis, she wouldn't be able to move, hence, you know, paralysis. Secondly, this exact figure was seen by another group of Point Pleasant residents. The Scarberries. Namely... Linda Scarberry and her aunt. It was five months after Danny's birth, their baby, placing it roughly in April. Linda was asleep in the basement apartment of the McDaniel house. She was still suffering from the paranoia of her encounter with the Mothman. This may explain why her aunt was sleeping in the same room, along with Linda's young child. Shortly after the clock chimed midnight, Linda woke up to see a man in these same checkered shirts now with the added details of black trousers and a crew cut. She tried to move, but found herself pinned in place by some invisible force. The man's unblinking eyes watched her as he produced a cigarette. The distinct clink of a lighter echoed in the darkness as the man ignited it. The orange glow reflected in the golden crucifix above the baby's cradle. Both Linda and the man's eyes were drawn to it, but when she looked back, he was gone. <laughs>
Suddenly, she could move. The aunt was up as well, who told her she had the craziest dream. Then this aunt then proceeded to describe the exact same man Linda had witnessed. So what are your thoughts so far? God, if some man showed up hovering over my bed at midnight and made me scream, I don't think I'd be complaining, but... My God. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is a podcast, Jessica, not the personal ads. Oh, God. Okay, fine. Um. Anyway, my phone number is... No. Oh, my God. 8675309. Oh, God. We can't start that again. That number had to be deactivated across the country. Um. Anyway... No, I just think it's strange that, like, all these people see the exact same thing. Half these people don't talk about it until much later, like, and the other half are like, you know, the child picked me up and shook me with its laser vision. <laughs> but, I, I don't know, do you think it's just sleep paralysis? Or no. Oh, no, it's gotta be more. Yeah, because if it was just a shadow figure, I would be open to sleep paralysis. But it's the checkered shirt. And the smiling, the creepy ass fucking smiling. I can't. Now, some people think this is Ender Cold, or perhaps one of his grinning men. However, I've heard theories that this could have been a human agent. I know that sounds weird, but the CIA did fund experiments into a technique called remote viewing, where they would use psychics uh, to project themselves into restricted areas to spy on people. CIA does so much sketchy fucking shit. And some stupid things. Uh, if you ever want to know how stupid the CIA got into uh, psychics, watch a hilarious movie called The Men Who Stare at Goats. It's great. It has uh, George Clooney in it. Oh, good. Now, those experiments, known as Project Stargate, only started in 1972, five years after the Mothman craze. However, maybe they're working on it before then. And this was some proto-experiment? What I do find very interesting, though, is the fact that the two people to experience this bizarre spectral intrusion were both named Linda. Linda Lily, Linda Scarberry. Uh, maybe there's no deeper connection, but I can see it being kind of like uh, the first Terminator movie. You know? Have you seen the first one? Where Arnold's Terminator only knows Sarah Connor's name, so he just goes through the phone book, killing each Sarah Connor he finds. Maybe here, the man was looking for Linda Scarberry, but had to go for a few Lindas first. Speaking of MIBs, Keel would mention in his book that in April, he knows a lot of strangers walking the streets of Point Pleasant, who all share the same characteristics, namely buzz cuts, suits, and athletic builds. A.K.A. the telltale signs of an undercover cop or a federal agent. Which brings me to something exciting I found out. That, to my knowledge, has never been mentioned by any other podcast covering the Mothman. This might be original shit. Oh, holy hell. To explain, to, to explain I present to you the November 20th, 1966 issue of the Athens Messenger, written by Mary High herself. So we're going back to just after the Scarberry Mallet sighting. The article reads, quote, Ed Brown, director of the West Virginia Security Service, a private detective concern, is interested in contacting any person who may have seen the monster. He would like to talk with the people whose names will never be revealed, 
for research and evaluation, end quote. That sounds like a good way to get a grippy sock vacation. Now, that's really interesting. Here we have proof that a private detective agency was looking into the Mothman. And this was only four days after the Scarry Mallet sighting, which means they got the drop on this case really early. In an interview, Merle Partridge, the guy who owned uh, a bandit, the German Shepherd that got killed by Mothman, supposedly, said he was interviewed shortly after a sighting by a number of people, including an Air Force officer and a detective. Now, he could possibly could have met a police detective instead of a private eye, but it's a coincidence that's worth pointing out. And if it really was a private detective, that means West Virginia Security Services could have been on this case even sooner than we thought. I decided to do some digging, but nothing much turned up. All I could find was this registry page from the West Virginia State Secretary Office. However, it does reveal something interesting. The company began August 13, 1965, but was dissolved by court order April 2, 1967. And it's interesting that they are dissolved just right after Keel said that Point Pleasant was overran by men that resemble the typical look of private detectives. That's just weird timing, at least in my opinion. It was founded and disbanded just in time for Mothman. Yeah. The year before and the year during. Just two years, of all the two years. And this is one of the cases they pick on? Right. Isn't it just weird that they got the drop on this so early? Like, who, they're a private detective agency. Who would hire them to look into this? Further, the company was dissolved by court order, which means that there should be public record of that. But there's not. Because, of course, there is not. <laughs> I sent a request to the county courthouse where the, com where the company was stationed, and they had nothing on it. Not a damn thing. What the fuck? So, the other question is, private detectives don't work for free. So, who hired them? Right, like, it's incredibly expensive to hire a PI. So, I can't imagine, first of all, that somebody did hire them over Mothman. Yeah. Or, you know? And also, I can't imagine, unless this guy, the PI, putting the advert out just had a very particular interest in the cases and was just going to do it because he wanted to. But also, my other concern is they're sitting here like, oh, we won't tell anyone. We're not going to talk about it. You'll never be mentioned by name. That sounds like an awful good way to make all your fucking witnesses of Mothman disappear. Just having them meet some random guy out in the woods. Yeah, I mean, just, it's... I don't know. I feel like it's worth noting. Yeah, for sure. Because this is four days. I know I keep repeating four days after the Scarberry Mallet sighting, which was the first big publicized one. So this is early on. And you don't get this for just any old cryptid. Like the Beast right. of Grafton didn't have private detectives after his ads. Neither did Flatwoods Monster, did he? No. I mean, it was looked into by Project Blue Book. Right, but that's like the biggest thing. And then the vegetable man, I mean the vegetable man, doesn't matter. <laughs> He's irrelevant. He likes onions and blood. It possibly could have been the government. And sometimes they will outsource their investigations to civilians as they have a bit more freedom in regard to detective work. They don't have to deal with uh, warrants or things like that. 
Or could West Virginia Security Services be human agents anonymously hired by Indrid Cold and the Grinning Men? Or could it have been a private interest or maybe even simply a concerned citizen? But if I may speculate, it may also imply that larger forces knew of the Mothman and had a vested interest in studying it. I just think that's... I feel like this is big news, and having no one else ever, to my knowledge, mentioned it before is weird. Am I going to die? Am I going to get killed? Is WVSS going to come for me? Eh, I don't know. I'd say you could hide out here, but I'm sure they know where I am, too. On April 6th, Mary Heyer and John Keel sighted another UFO and even managed to communicate with her. I think it would be best to let Mary explain in her own words as she actually wrote a legal affidavit. Yeah. Quote, to whom it may concern, I, Miss Harry Meyer of Redacted Address, <coughs> Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a reporter for the Athens, Ohio Messenger. Hereby swear that I was present at the following events and personally witnessed it as described. On the evening of April 6, 1967, I accompanied Mr. John A. Keel of New York City to an isolated hilltop on Five Mile Creek Road south of Gallipolis Ferry, West Virginia. Shortly after 11 p.m., I observed a pale red object of undetermined size moving in a controlled manner slightly above treetop level over a hill about 500 yards south of our position. There are no houses or roads on that hill. The object appeared to move cautiously and slowly for the sky to the far end of the sloping field, the light flickering on and off in a regular pattern. As the object drew, drew closer, Mr. Keel got out of the car, flashed a powerful flashlight directly at it three times. The object immediately returned the signal by flashing a brilliant white light three times. It then rose upwards, and the pale red light went completely out. End quote. So, yeah, they responded in Morse code, and the UFO mimicked them. Weird. Yeah. Weird. I mean, they've got to be intelligent, right? If they can build UFOs and shit before we even have, like, you know... Our modern technology, like... We don't even have the internet at this point. Right. Like, they're so smart. They're so much smarter than us. But also, I feel like, given that they seem to be so much smarter than us, why do they want Earth? Like, why do they want to be here? Like, this is the place you fucking roll up your windows and lock the goddamn doors. (laughs) Just drive by. Resources. Also, why West Virginia? I don't know. Coal. 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 What if they need coal? What if coal is dark matter? That's what you're using, they're using to power the spaceships. <laughs> I want you to know I have a mental image of like little green men in a UFO, but they're dressed in like rolled up sleeves and suspenders and trousers, and they're all like Irish going like, oh, do we need to shovel the coal into the harness to keep the UFO going, lads? <laughs> like, it's a, like it's a train. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, dude. Imagine UFOs, but piloted by little alien train conductors. I'm trying to think what Earth is good for, and within Earth, what the fuck is West Virginia good for? Metal. A lot of raw resources. Banjos. Yeah. Pepper and rolls. Yes. 
I mean, pepperoni rolls were made in Clarksburg, right? They're pretty close. Fairmont. They were made in fucking Fairmont. The Country Club Bakery is the home to the original pepperoni roll. And everyone in fucking no, everyone in Clarksburg will argue to the death that they're the home of the pepperoni roll. No, it's Fairmont. All I know is my theater troupe said Clarksburg was the original place to get pepperoni rolls. And that's why we did our fundraisers there. Shit, dog. Calm down. Jesus. (laughs) Fairmont, okay, the point of pepperoni rolls is that (laughs) they were easy for coal miners. Women would make them for their coal mining husbands because they were easy for coal miners to take in their lunch because it's not like a sandwich with lunch meat where if you drop it, you're going to, like, spread your meat out on the ground and get it all fucking dirty. (laughs) If you drop a pepperoni roll. Spread your meat on the ground and get it dirty. Ew. I I just want people to know that is a phrase I'm dealing with right now. But... If you drop a pepperoni roll because your meat is in the bread, it doesn't get dirty. You just brush off the bread and you keep eating. That's the point of pepperoni rolls. Clarksburg did not get coal mines until much, much later than Fairmont did. Fairmont's one of the original coal mining towns in the state. So Fairmont is the original home to the pepperoni roll. Dahmer. (laughs) Therapy. Forrest Gump. Pepperoni rolls. The tangents just can go on. <laughs> they just keep going. I love it. We got we got to reach that uh, hour mark, dude. This is why none of the other co-hosts will record with me. <laughs> hey, that's not why. I know it's because they work. It's one of many. Re- oh, <laughs> I'm joking. Fuck what was that? Oh, right. <laughs> Another bizarre encounter happened as Keel went back to the same hill accompanied by Mabel McDaniel and two anonymous women. Around 10.15 p.m., a red glow appeared to the south. Keel flashed the glow in an attempt to communicate, but it didn't respond. However, a second glow did appear next to it. Attempting to get a better view, Keel hopped over a fence into a field. Let's do this shit. I, I, I know he's from New York, but I wouldn't be that comfortable trespassing in West Virginia. Yeah, I know. I know. As he crossed the field, a third light appeared, this time blue, over an orchard. John flashed his light at it, and the UFO grew brighter and brighter before suddenly, like a broken bulb, went out. The red glows soon followed suit. Demoralized, John returned to the car to find that the three women were incredibly frightened. Though they insisted on staying, John elected to stay behind by himself. Five minutes later, another red glow appeared on a ridge nearby before turning white and descending towards the river. A boat on the river flashed a spotlight towards the glow, and just as it had done for John's flashlight, it disappeared. It's just the UFO broke down and those were the hazard lights and the red lights. (laughs) (laughs) The next day, Mabel met with John and explained why they were so scared. She said that she saw a tall man in the same field as him and assumed it was John. They watched as the figure, obscured by a shadow, moved out of the field and towards the car. Instead of getting in, it crossed behind the vehicle. At that moment, John's flashlight turned on still in the field. In that instant, they came to the starting realization that whatever was behind the car wasn't John. 
They locked the doors and waited for him to come back, though the imposter did not seem to make any moves. This struck Keel's odd, given that he had crossed paths with the man, but he would have crossed paths with the man, but saw no one as he went onto the field. More UFO sightings would come in over the month. The April 18th issue of the Athens Manager would read, quote, Unidentified objects were out in force Monday night, residents of Mason County reported. The TNT area was visited by Bill Ross and several others. Ross said a UFO came within 150 feet of them. The strange light was about 100 feet above the group, he added. Mr. and Mrs. James Lilly of Camp Conley reported that eight UFOs were spotted in that area. They have seen UFOs nightly for three weeks. Another man said he and his sister watched a UFO appear between Point Pleasant and Henderson about 9.30 p.m. Travel, quote, very low across the sky in a northwesterly direction. It was visible for 30 minutes. Several residents of New Haven have seen UFOs with witnesses describing different colored lights and brilliance. All report the absence of sound. A Huntington newspaper published a time exposure photograph of a sighting in the Camp Conley area Sunday night. The accompanying story notes that why objects could be an elaborate hoax of some sort. Competent observers say the thing is not a satellite, nor is it an aircraft, end quote. So you're getting a lot of these consistent details over such a wide area by so many different people. Some of these people seeing it just regularly. No sound, shit like that. Where are your thoughts so far? I don't understand. I don't understand why we keep going hunting for these too. Like, I just don't. Like, people are like, Oh my god, I got sunburnt, and then there was a man in the field with my boyfriend John, or whatever, and then there's another man in a field, and then we're also looking at these lights. Like, why are we still looking for the goddamn lights? Give up, leave it be, whatever it is, for the love of God, leave it alone. Whatever they want them happen. Right. The same day that article came out, an anonymous pilot reported chasing after a light. He chased it for 2,400 feet flashing the landing lights while approaching. Before he could get a good look, the object disappeared. Witnesses on the ground saw the object was displaying both white and red lights. The same day that article came out, oh wait, fuck. A newspaper article would read, quote, Monday night, by my math, the 17th. The Meigs County Sheriff's Department received telephone calls from where residents reported seeing an unidentified flying object. Observers said the object resembled a silver disc. It was lighted by revolving lights that was flying low and at tremendous speed. Civil Defense Director Andy Wilson and other Civil Defense personnel have also reported seeing the objects and could not offer no explanation for them. End quote. So this is being seen by officials now. Civil Defense Director. I'm not entirely sure what Civil Defense is. I don't think it's like a military position, but it's like paramilitary. These are like officials. I'm looking it up. Thank you. What do you think of the episode so far? Um, the ship be wild. Is it is it interesting? It is. Okay, good. The Office of Civil Defense, an organization, was renamed the Defense Civil Preparedness Agency on May 5th, 1972, and was abolished on July 20th, 1979. Um, it was a branch of the Department of Defense, and um, 
the agency that has superseded it is Federal Emergency Management Agency, <clears throat> headquarters in Washington, D.C. Okay, so have to have their director say they don't understand what this shit is is a big deal. Right. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, Harmon, why are you so fixated on UFOs? This is a Mothman episode. A fair question with the answer being that the two seem to be well-connected to each other. One particular case cements that association. The following excerpt is from AppalachianAudi.org, one of the big sources that I used here. Quote, On May 19, 1967, about 10.30 p.m., while driving past the TNT area on Route 62, Brenda Stone and another woman reported reportedly witnessed what looked like a winged creature fly up to meet a UFO. The women claimed that they had seen a shadowy form with bright red lights like glowing eyes in the treetop of a tree near the road. A large, hovering red light, which looked to be a luminous object, then appeared and approached the tree. The shadowy figure rose up towards the red glowing object and vanished. The flying object then flew out of sight to the north. End quote. So yeah, Mothman flew into a UFO. Now, does this mean they're connected or, quite hilariously, the possibility that Mothman got abducted? He's just flying around to suddenly hit him with a tractor beam. He's like, what the fuck? He's a moth. He saw the light. Oh my God, you're right. <clears throat> it's a good point, though. Okay, but the whole last episode, it was just talking about lamps. <laughs> Mothman and lamps. But no, really. I mean, bumping into the UFO over and over again. And the aliens are like, what the fuck is this? This is the biggest goddamn bird I've ever seen. Zeno, Zeno, make him go away. Zeno, get the fly swatter. Call Indrid. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. Grin at him or something. Smile. Say cheese, Mothman. Even the aliens see Mothman, they're like, what the fuck is this shit? What the fuck is that, Ingrid? I do not know. And that's it. That's how I imagine I'm talking. This will be painful. Goodbye. Ah! <laughs> Crashes car. <laughs> listen to the last episode. I don't know why you'd be listening to part three if you didn't listen to part two. But, you know, people be wild and like that. What were you saying? Um... Just, do you think Mothman's connected to UFOs? I don't know. I feel like there is a good possibility that Mothman could be abducted. I feel like there's a good possibility he did just see the lights and start flying into it. Because, like, I don't know how intelligent Mothman is, but he's part moth, part man, right? So, like... Well, he's more described as a bird. Right. But, you know, he's just like, dunk. That's all I imagine. I don't know. I don't necessarily... I don't want to believe that Mothman is an alien, but at the same time, I don't want to believe that all of these random things are plaguing this one little town. I mean, like, at a certain point, it's kind of a possibility, isn't it, that there's no reason UFOs and a separate cryptid could be seen in the same place. Right. Or, let me be a big Mothman fan here for a second. Do you think it's possible that Mothman isn't a monster, but is in fact a guardian, and that he is combating these UFOs. Maybe. Just like, because remember, it's it's the UFO that killed Bandit, the German Shepherd from episode one. That's it wasn't true. Mothman. So. But also, 
Didn't Mothman burn down a covered bridge? No. Didn't he land on it before it burned down? And so everyone you mean like, the Mothman? silver bridge, homie? Yeah. That wasn't a covered bridge. Okay. Well, still, didn't Mothman burn down a bridge? It, no, one of the cables snapped. Well, one of the ingots. Supposedly. Allegedly. No, then they found the thing. Okay. So that was not Mothman's fault. Yeah, although he was... Well, what was that's the next episode. That's the okay. next episode is okay. the Silver Bridge. Spoilers, the Silver Bridge collapsed. Uh, I don't know if y'all know that. Um, but yeah, do you think Mothman could be like a guardian? Maybe. He's the guardian of the galaxy. Do you think he flew in there and it's like roundhouse kicking brain men? <laughs> Hello there, Mothman. Oh shit. Just catching like a flying crane hook. Okay, we also explored the possibility of Mothman is just like West Virginia's Batman. Like it's some rich guy. I don't know what he got rich from. Probably some sort of white collar crime. He made pepperoni rolls. Yeah. And then, um, you know, he just bought a moth suit and was like, fuck yeah. He went to fight the UFO. Yeah. So he is a hero. Yes. <laughs> I gotta protect my people. Dun. Dun. I am vengeance. I'm just imagining Robert Pattinson's Batman just doing the boo, boo, boo on vengeance on like his little gray alien. Okay, but haven't we've already established that like if injured was an alien, that like they probably look like people more than anything else. So like, and they blended into society pretty easily. So like, we can't say they're little green men or gray men being beaten the fuck out of by Mothman. They're like weird humanoids being beaten the fuck out of. By Mothman. I, I like to be optimistic. I like to give Mothman the benefit of doubt. I want to think he's a hero. I want to think he's a good guy. Are you romanticizing Mothman? Yeah. Have you seen that statue's ass? Daddy. You're worse than me. Moth Daddy. I won't apologize. You think it's hot that Mothman fights UFOs? Yes. And I'm tired of pretending it's not. Anyway, I'll probably get it out. With this, we can establish a definite link between the Mothman and the glowing objects in the skies. And this shows that the Mothman case is far deeper than just a simple cryptic encounter, but very well may be a full-blown conspiracy. He was desperate to get to the bottom of this, yet as his interest in the phenomenon grew, so too did its interest in him. The Grain Men and other preternatural forces drew closer and closer to Keel and his allies. For example, on May 5th, Mary Hire would again encounter the strange man who would visit her office. Remember the one who went, hee hee, when he saw a, a pen? <laughs> Sorry. She would find him wandering the streets of Point Pleasant. This time he is dressed in a light brown uniform and thick soled shoes. The recognition appeared mutual, for as soon as she he saw higher. The stranger sprinted to a black car nearby. Inside was a tall man behind the steering wheel who, as soon as the stranger hopped in, peeled out of the parking lot. <laughs> Three days later on the 8th, a black car pulled up outside Hire's house as she was stepping inside. A man got out brandishing a camera and before she could react, he took a picture of her. Sadly, Mary did not get a good look at, look at the man as the flash was so bright as to temporarily blind her as he made his getaway. This phenomenon, Keel would refer to as 
phantom photographers, similar to MIBs, but with the added modus operandi of taking startling snapshots of their targets. Their targets in particular seem to be witnesses of either UFOs or the Mothman. Mothman. Back in April, a man in Ohio was driving on round two when a black figure burst out from the tree line of the chief cornstalk hunting grounds and flew just above his car. Quote, it's at least 10 feet wide. I stepped on the gas and kept up, kept right up with me. We are doing over 70. It scared the hell out of me. Then I saw it move ahead of me, turn toward the river, end quote. I bet the speed limit on that road, too, at the time was like 55. He's hitting. So this man is like, I'm children. doing 70, and he's like, this is fast. Months later in October, the same man would describe that his brush with the bazaar was not over when he returned to his apartment. He tells Keo, quote, When I opened the door, I saw this man standing in my living room. I think he was dressed in all black. I couldn't see his face, but he was about five foot nine. I started to fumble for a light switch when he took my picture. There was a big flash of light so bright I couldn't see a thing. While I was rubbing my eyes, a burglar darted past me and went out the door. I guess I arrived just in time because nothing was missing. End quote. Steve and Mary Mallet, too, would be harassed by a strange man attempting to take their picture before driving off. They managed to write down the number of his Volkswagen, but when the police ran the license plate, the search came up empty. Unlisted license plates are very hard to come by. So whoever was leading this campaign of stalking, they evidently had quite the resources behind them. It was you. I don't have that kind of money, Humphrey. I, I still order off the dollar menu. It became evident that these phantom photographers were not content to remain in Point Pleasant. According to the Mothman prophecies, there were a report of these optic observers targeting UFO witnesses all over the country. And... Even more frightening, they had taken notice of Keel himself. During spring, Keel was back home in New York and was walking down the street with a friend when a tall stranger suddenly came around the corner. He wore a sports jacket and a pair of slacks that seemed way too big for him, hanging loosely off his thin frame. The man also had a camera in his hands. He abruptly leveled it at Keel and his friend and, click, snapped their photo. Just as suddenly as he appeared, the man turned and sprinted away from the baffled pair. So it's a peeping Tom. That was strange, his friend commented. <laughs> and he was such an evil-looking man. Why'd he take our picture? It's Jeffrey Dahmer! <laughs> My god, Jess! You can't keep bringing back the tangents. But what do you think? Do you think it's just a coincidence or something? I don't know. It's so confusing. Music, just the amount of shit that goes on. Oh, it's not even that. We haven't gone to the weirdest shit. Before. I know, that's the problem. <laughs> Episode four is gonna go with fucking bananas. The shit is bananas. Dan Darson, in a phone call to Q, later mentioned his own experience being photographed by a man in a black suit. He also told Q he was planning to return to West Virginia with a film crew to properly record and document the strange activity going on. However, I will point out that all of Darson's attempts to capture the objects on film fell through, as production was plagued with plenty of technical issues. Batteries died, 
film would be ruined when developed and the crews themselves were seemingly targeted. So it's The Exorcist. One assistant woke up in her New York apartment by a loud beep, only to find one of the strange luminous lights directly outside her window. What the fuck? I know, right? Q, on the other hand, was traveling to Washington, <coughs> D.C. And though he was sure he locked his car when he left, he returned to find that someone had smashed an event on the window and robbed him. Strangely enough, it wasn't money the thief was after. Instead, they took his briefcase, recorder, notebook, and a few other investigative objects. They also removed his address book and left it out on the car seat. It's worth knowing that this happened while his car was parked on Connecticut Avenue, a very busy stretch of road, for only a few minutes in broad daylight. Freaky. I don't like this. Yeah, this is paranoia fuel. Around this time, another attack would be made on Mary Hyde. Working at the messenger often required her to work relatively late, and in such a small town, it didn't take long after dark for Main Street to empty. As she was leaving the office, she noticed a black Cadillac, driven by, quote, a very large man, end quote, that seemed to slowly stalk her. She reached her own car while the creep took off around the corner, but that wouldn't be her only encounter of the night. Quote, I was heading out on Route 62 when I saw it again. It headed straight for me. I pulled over as far as I could and almost ran right into me. It was the same car, but... Now there are three men in it. I could see one of them was wearing glasses. Like those sunglasses that wrap around your head. I've never seen any of them in Point Pleasant before. Pit vipers? And <laughs> <laughs> quote, <laughs> he's rocking the pit vipers. <laughs> You mess with the moth, you get the vipers. He also just has a Tinder profile where he's wearing his pit vipers and like a Bud Light hat and holding a fish. fish? Oh. <laughs> or uh, he has a YouTube channel where he rants about uh, liberals in his truck. Or uh, he has a YouTube channel where he teaches you how to shoot guns, but he has no idea how to actually shoot guns. <laughs> also, why is it always a black Cadillac? Hey, one time it was a Lincoln. Keel took this as a message. A message with a single, simple point to make. We can get you whenever we want. During his 1967 investigations, Kuehl discovered that many of the witnesses he interviewed were being visited by a particularly strange individual. A woman claiming to be his secretary. She is described as blonde, well-groomed, and having a welcoming southern accent. This is despite the fact that Kuehl... Didn't have a secretary. It's Dolly Parton. Uh-huh. <laughs> the men in black work nine to five. What a way to make a living. The revelation grew only more unsettling when he learned the kind of questions she asked. They're typically very personal questions, focusing on health, family background, and economic status. Me. Nothing that actually pertained to his investigations. Me on a Tinder date. Are you just going to say me after everything strange? Literally me. Oh my god, he's literally me. Oh my god, injured Kilo Sokino. <laughs> Mothman based. Poggers. Ew. While this was going on, Mothman sightings continued. On November 2nd, 1967, a woman named Virginia Thomas, sister to Marcella Bennett, 
one of the earlier Mothman witnesses, was within her home inside the TNT area when she heard a strange noise from outside. She later told Mary Heyer, quote, The best way I can describe it is that it was like a bad fan belt, but much louder. I stepped outside. It seemed to be coming from one of the igloos, and I saw a huge shadow spread across the grass. It was just afternoon, so there shouldn't have been any shadow like that. Then this figure appeared. It walked erect like a man, but it was all gray, and it was much bigger than any man I've ever saw. It moved very fast across the field and disappeared to the trees. It didn't seem to be walking exactly. It was, it was almost gliding faster than any man could run. It was hunting season, so I knew it wasn't a hunter. No hunter in his right mind would dress in gray. Around here, they wear red coats and red caps. And it wasn't a bear or anything like that. It really scared me, end quote. There that month, four hunters would spot a large gray figure of red eyes within the Chief Cornstalk Park. They were so terrified by the creature that they never thought to take a shot at it. Which, you know, I don't approve of shooting cryptids unless they're, like, evil. So I, I you know... I don't want to shoot mom, and I don't want to get hurt. Early in December, Keel will receive a phone call from Dan Darson around 2 a.m. He was in an intense panic, the most Keel had ever heard him in. It is worth knowing that Darson got his start by recording a riot in 1961 as an 18-year-old. He was not a pussyfooting, sensitive artist type who would crumble easily under pressure. Yet his voice was shaky when he spoke. How can I stop all this, Keel? Stop what? All the things that have been happening, I want to quit. I want out. Keel gave him honest advice. Leave it all behind. UFOs and the associated strangeness were like an addiction. The curiosity pulling deeper and deeper as you crave that final catharsis of putting it all together. But you know what they say about curiosity in cats. Searching harder, looking closer, only pulls one further into the trap. Continuing could consume your life and, in time, consume you too. And like any addiction, Darson had to quit cold turkey. Darson would send a portion of his files to Keel. He destroyed the rest. Dan never told Keel what happened that finally pushed him over the edge. Thoughts? What the fuck? What is going on? Yeah, this is freaky. This is a genuinely scary episode. I don't like that. Like, I, I need to get, like, a, I need, like, seven padlocks added to the front door. And that last thing about racing towards catharsis, I feel, is a very fitting conclusion for this episode. Yeah. You see, we're drawing towards the end of this story, but that doesn't necessarily mean the end of the mystery, the answers that we've been craving. What it does mean is that we're building up to something. With all this fear and tension, everyone at Point Pleasant could feel like the world was holding its breath. Like it was all building up for one final snap. And it would come. And when it did, everything was going to come falling down. That'll be for our next episode, Mothman Part 4 of Portents and Prophecies.
But what are you thinking so far? Just a final wrap up before we end this episode. I feel like this has been one of the more disturbing episodes. Really? Personally. Because there aren't any answers. You're right. It's just like a continuous mystery. And I think that's why I'm so like, I don't want to say I'm frustrated, but like perplexed by all of this. Yeah, like it it's gross. Like it's gross to think about all this stuff happening in one town, but there's no like solid answer to any of it. And you can't get a solid answer. And there's just nothing. There's nothing. It just keeps happening. There's no rhyme or reason. It just happens. It is. It just is. Did you, it is what it is. It is what it is. Being from West Virginia, I take it you've always kind of been familiar with Mothman? I feel like it's ingrained in us from a very young age. Like, I think the first time I ever learned about Mothman was when I was, like, in kindergarten. And we, like, colored little Mothman pictures. Yeah, and then, like cryptids in general are very ingrained in the culture here so i remember when i was a kid um taking a field trip to like frigate's fort and they read us stories out of like the telltale lilac bush which is like west virginia ghost stories and then when i got a little bit older my aunt and uncle bought a camp in flatwoods and so we sat around the fire and would consistently tell stories about the flatwoods the flatwoods monster like when i was a kid um, and it's like so ingrained in your culture to like know what a cryptid is around here to like want answers for things, you know, but this is one of those things you don't get answers. Yeah. There's no explanation when it comes down to it. Did you ever expect, like I said, you've been familiar with Mothman for years. Did you ever realize how deep it went that there's all this extra stuff attached to it? No, because I feel like we also kind of monetize off of it, which means only the pretty stuff, you know? Yeah. You don't get into the deep kind of stories behind it. You don't get into anything that doesn't make sense because you just, it's Mothman. Yeah. It's just Mothman. It's Man and Moth. Yeah. Which is easy to sell and understand, marketable. But then you start bringing, like, I take it before this podcast, you never heard of Andrew Peel. Cold. Andrew Cold. Well, well, except for the thing. Yeah. Until I introduce you to the concept, I kind of heard, of heard a cold. little bit about him because my my dad used to talk about it, like right. a little bit. Well, I mean, working for a government agency for so long and talking about stuff like the men in black and that kind of thing that happened, like that was very ingrained in my childhood as well as government conspiracies. True. <laughs> so, true. Um, I had heard about him a little bit because you know we talked about him as a conspiracy essentially but I didn't know how deep he ran into stuff especially when it came to being around like Point Pleasant and the Mothman shit and all of that it's wild and supposedly he wasn't even seen in just West Virginia before you're seeing West Virginia you're seeing New Jersey oh and didn't we talk in the last episode he went to Florida yeah uh, supposedly, according to uh, the author of Erie Appalachia, very good book, recommended. Met the dude, he's great, lovely guy. How'd you meet him? Uh, in the Mothman Festival. Oh, he was there? Yeah, he cool. signed my book. Cute. Well, my copy of his book. I'm such a little fanboy. Yeah. It's adorable. I, I bought a Mothman pizza. <laughs> and, and a Mothman milkshake. Shake. 
And the Mothman could keep. This is a fun time. I'm trying to think of what other Mothman could associate things I ate. Because I had I made I made room for all Mothman stuff. That is probably not very healthy, but I don't care. He ate Mothman's entire pussy. Indeed. But uh, any theories you've had so far? Just like, do you think Indrid's a per? Do you think he's with the government? Do you think it's like two factions working against each other? I'm kind of wondering if it's all the CIA. Like, I'm wondering if Indrid is ingrained into the CIA and like the Smiling Men are all like CIA agents and that kind of thing. Um, I kind of think Mothman is a protector in a way at this point because of like potentially attempting to fight off the UFO. I also think it's a good a good possibility that because he's a bomb, he just saw pretty light. It was like bonk. bonk. Um, I don't know. It's all so complicated. I personally think there's multiple groups. There has to be. Of men in black roaming around Point Pleasant that you have the guys with crew cuts, buzz cuts, and uh, suits who are actual federal agents or maybe working for WVSS, but human. They're human at the very fucking least. But then you have the grain men who are their own separate little faction who are probably extraterrestrial. I do want to throw out an idea. I want to hear your thoughts on it now that we've discussed them attempting to steal a blood mobile. Do you think the Grinning Men, because they are specifically so close to humans they can blend in, do you think they're artificial humans? They may be. Like aliens that could look completely fucking different. Maybe they are the little green men, little gray men, or something like that. But to blend in, they steal human blood and made something that could pass as a human. And maybe that's why they don't get like the finer points of human interaction. Like in Indrid's mind, it could be, I need to grin, I need to smile because smile shows friendliness. Right. So I will smile and they'll think I'm friendly because he doesn't understand like the nuances of a smile. Right. I don't know. I feel like that is a possibility. I don't want to believe that anyone yet is like a complete bad guy in any scenario. Because, I mean, Indrid was nice. He could help people. He, like, got that one guy's shoes and watch back, right? Yeah, but on the flip side, intimidating witnesses in trying to kidnap Connie. That's true. He did try and kidnap Connie. Supposedly. It might be someone else, but it was very close to how Indrid is described. So it's either him or someone in the same faction, or it might just be a big old coincidence. Are you excited for the next episode, though? I am excited for the next episode. I'm really just... To the point where I'm like, some of this stuff needs to start really intertwining and like wrapping together because I am sick of having absolutely no answers. I wish I could help with that. Oh boy, so it's not getting better. No. I do have a theory that we'll discuss in episode five. Yeah, there's a fifth episode, fuckers. Episode five is going to kill us. Yeah, but that one's just pop culture and theories. Okay. Uh... And I'm going to be honest, it's a theory that to me makes a lot of sense. And I fucking hate it. I took a pop culture history class as an elective in college freshman year. Um, and we talked a lot about Mothman shit in that really? class. Yeah. We also watched Space Ghost episodes and had to write essays on it. So uh, maybe not the best class. Wait, Space Ghost OG or Space Ghost? Uh, Space Ghost Coast Coast. Space Ghost OG. Oh, so it's not even the funny talk show. No. 
It is like the full-blown weird superhero cartoon of Space Ghost. Okay, everyone. Uh, final tally. Jeffrey Dahmer. Therapy. Uh, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Pepperoni Rolls. And Space Ghost. Yes. Do I miss anything? Based. Based. But... Ratio. Um, we forgot ratio. That's the one. Maidenless. No bitches. Touch grass. <laughs> anyway. Luke's heavyweight makes that thought go away. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, I feel like we had a pretty fun time making it. It was a little bit of paranoia fuel, but hey, you know, that's sometimes good for the soul. And we should be uh, hopefully back soon with part four of Portents and Prophecies. But I'll have to wait until next time. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe on uh, Apple, Google Podcasts, uh, anywhere this podcast is available. Uh, I presume it's available to you if you're listening to this part right now. But if you want updates, you can follow us on Twitter at the Cryptic Code. But besides that, watch out for men in checkered shirts. Don't go driving bloodmobiles late at night. But most of all, stay spooky out there.